This episode is brought to you by Gorgeous. Gorgeous is the leading customer support platform built for e-commerce brands, helping merchants unlock revenue and deliver exceptional customer service. This episode is brought to you by Okendo. Over 5,000 of Shopify's fastest growing retailers trust Okendo to capture high impact reviews, showcase customer experiences, and drive conversions. Stay tuned for some special offers from our amazing sponsors exclusively for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. Hello, everyone. It's Lee Green, and welcome back to the Stairway to CEO podcast. It's my mission to bring you real, honest, and unfiltered interviews with some of the most innovative founders and CEOs from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 115 of the Stairway to CEO podcast. I'm your host, Lee, and today I spoke with Kaylee Dunnewald, the founder and CEO of Sacred Serve. Sacred Serve is a vegan, gluten-free, plant-powered line of gelato bringing function into the frozen aisle by using a base of organic young coconut meat combined with superfoods, adaptogens, and medicinal mushrooms. In this episode, Kaylee shares with us her journey from growing up playing volleyball, lacrosse, and the O to working as a real estate consultant for Deloitte, to taking a sabbatical to India and Bali, which led to her passion for holistic nutrition and inspired her to create Sacred Serve. We talk about the omnipresent pressure she feels as an entrepreneur, how she started the company with a soft serve machine that didn't work, and the mental challenges she's had to overcome in order to learn how to promote herself and fundraise as a solo female first-time founder. If you like what you're hearing on the Stairway to CEO podcast, we'd love it if you left us an awesome review. And don't forget to click subscribe to get updates on when we publish new episodes every Tuesday morning. You can follow us on Spotify or check us out at stairwaytoceo.com. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, Kaylee. Thanks so much for joining the show. I am really excited to hear your story and building Sacred Serve. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Where are you calling in from? Are you in Chicago? I am in Chicago. It's nice and rainy today. So we're waiting for spring to come. Isn't that like a typical Chicago day? A little rainy? (laughs) It is rainy and cold. So where are you from originally? Are you from that area? I am originally. Yeah. I went to school in Indiana, did a bunch of traveling around the world and then landed back here in Chicago. So when you were a kid, what kind of kid were you? Like, what were you like, or what were you into? And what did you want to be when you grew up? Yeah, I think I was a really curious kid, interested in a lot of things. I credit my parents to having us try all sorts of things, all sports, instruments, arts and crafts. So yeah, sports, what kind of sports and instruments were you into? I um, played volleyball and lacrosse. We were lucky that our school had a lacrosse program, even though we were here in the Midwest. Uh, Yeah. Women's lacrosse is kind of rare. Yeah. It's it's kind of an East coast thing. So I did, we did do it here. And then I actually took that and played in college as well. So yeah, volleyball and lacrosse. And then from the instrument side, I played piano from a very young age and wound up 
picking up the oboe in junior high and high school. What is an oboe? You know, I think growing up, I had red hair and freckles and blue eyes, which was different than my whole family. So I've always just been inclined to these unique style. Really? Where's it come from? Your whole family doesn't have your looks. (laughs) We don't know. So we all my my whole family has brown hair, brown eyes, and it looks like my exact hair color actually came from my mom's great grandmother. Um, So skipped a couple of generations there, but yeah, you know, just the uniqueness. I was always drawn to things that people weren't, everyone wasn't doing. And the oboe was certainly an instrument that uh, no one was picking up. That's hilarious. I kind of did the same thing. I think it was like fifth grade, fourth grade, you got to choose an instrument and, you know, I could kind of feel like all the different cliques in school were choosing a certain (laughs) instrument to fit in, like the clarinet kids thing going, all the popular kids wanted to play the saxophone or drums (laughs) and the one instrument no one wanted to touch that I thought looked pretty cool and different was the trombone. And I literally (laughs) played the trombone for years until my mom's like, so you're going to keep playing in high school. Right. And I'm like, do you want me to die? Like I will be such a nerd in high school. I already have everything stacked against me being super skinny. All this. I can't do that. No, I'm not playing in high school. (laughs) That's exactly right. Yep. So the oboe, I still can't, I don't know what that is. I know it looks just like a clarinet, but it has kind of a different reed at the top. So um, yeah, it sounds similar to the clarinet as well. But again, because I was one of the very few that played that, I got extra attention, was first chair, you know, just really made it my own. So that no was competition, great. you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. it's like, <laughs> it's like business. Once you get to the highest level, no one else is up there. So uh, yeah, it was great. <laughs> so when you were a kid, what did you want to be when you grew up or what kind of entrepreneurial things are you into? Are there any signs looking back that you're like, I was actually pretty entrepreneurial as a kid too? Yeah. You know, I don't know if I was that entrepreneurial. My brother was the one that was you know, selling gum for a dollar a stick when he was little. So I I probably should have learned some more lessons from my brother, but, um, you know, just, I think the curiosity is what I've always had as a big quality of mine, just really interested in figuring out a lot of different things, trying a lot of different things. And so I think really it was mostly later in life that I kind of recognized, look, I might be able to get more freedom and more experiences by doing something my own way. Yeah. And so what were the dynamics of your family? Sounds like you had a brother. What did your parents do? Yeah, I had a younger brother. He's three years younger. We're super close. I guess we got closer when we went to college. He also went to Indiana University. So we overlapped for a year there. And um, my parents, my dad, super funny. So he was kind of the playful parent. My mom was more of the strict parent, but she was the one that pushed us into piano and a lot of these different things. So definitely grateful for that. But yeah, grew up, we have a ton of family in Chicago, a lot of cousins. My grandparents were there. So just a big family, really great time. We all, all of our cousins went to the same high school and school. So super fun. Nice, nice community to have. I grew up with a a decent amount of family nearby and it it was really nice. Now I'm in LA starting my own family and I'm like, there's no one here. It's hard. (laughs) Where is everybody? (laughs) Where is the Easter egg hunts for my kid? It's just, you know, like grandma and grandpa had a crazy yard and hid a ton of eggs and it was a whole thing every year. And now I'm like, "Mm, that's not gonna happen. (laughs) Totally. And so what were some of the first jobs that you had either in college or before college? 
Yeah. Um, in college, I had summer internships. So I think one of my favorites was I worked for a contractor, a general contractor, home builder. I was very interested in real estate, thought that I would want to be a builder designer myself. So did that. Then the next summer went slightly more corporate, went into more of the financial world, worked downtown at a real estate firm, tried to understand a little bit of what that was like. But yeah, I think it was really working with the home builder, which felt very entrepreneurial. It was a small business. I was outside all day working directly with the contractors on projects. Uh, really liked that pace. That's awesome. And so you graduate college. You're, what did you, um, it looks like you studied business, finance, and real estate. But then you also kind of get into health pretty quick. So what was the transition from real estate into your passion for health? Yeah, so I had graduated college and worked um, in consulting at Deloitte, doing a lot of real estate valuation. And it was about five years, three years into that job that I took a sabbatical and went to live in India um, to study yoga and meditation, living on an ashram there for a couple months. What inspired that though? Like, where did that come from? Yeah, it was, I was feeling stuck in my job and I had gone through a really bad breakup. Mm, boyfriend situation, like bad boyfriend situation. Oh God. And I just remember during that time feeling so anxious and had really felt like yoga was the one place that I could go where I would put my phone down. I would have an hour to myself and just get that mental clarity, knowing I wouldn't be distracted by this horrible breakup. And so my roommate at the time had called me and said, look, I'm quitting my job. I'm going to do a round the world trip and I'm going to stop off in India and do this teacher training program. And I know that you're super into that. Would you have any interest in joining me? And I remember where I was sitting. I was sitting outside of my steps of my apartment that I shared with her. And when I got that call, I just felt like I knew I needed a change, but I didn't know what it was. I wasn't happy at work. I wasn't feeling good. And when she said this, it just felt like, yes, no matter what has to happen, I will be there. I'll make this happen. If I have to quit, whatever, I'll be there. That's awesome. So you're like, okay, I feel like I have to go do this. This is going to be wild and crazy, but it's going to be fun. Do some yoga, get over this breakup, this horrible guy and move on. So what was it like? You go over there to what? Bali? Yeah, it was uh, India. We were in Rishikesh and it was wonderful. I saw a different way of life. I think one of the most striking things was people with a lot less money being a lot happier than I found myself back at home with a lot more resources. So it was kind of this flip the script. What exactly have I been taught? How am I living? Is there something that I could redesign at home to make myself happier? Which was really kind of the impetus to starting to look inside at my health, the food I was eating, what else I was doing that was kind of affecting my overall mental health back at home. And so what did you change? What did you, how did you start changing the habits that you had at home and what did you learn when you were away? And then what changes, you know, did you implement? Yeah, I definitely started eating a healthier diet. I think the biggest changes that started to take place first were actually mental changes in terms of just how I'm viewing myself. I remember um, one of the biggest roadblocks to changing careers and becoming an entrepreneur was actually the perception that I felt other people had of me. I remember sitting in India with my friends saying, look, I love yoga. I would actually love to go home and become a yoga teacher, but I'm actually afraid that when I introduce myself to people and say I'm a yoga teacher, they won't know how smart and accomplished I am. And that is crazy. Like, what is that social conditioning that I had at the time where I just felt like it was so important for people to know 
what I had accomplished. I'm more than just a yoga teacher. Type yeah. Of thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's like, what's wrong with a yoga teacher for one. And secondly, what, you know, where is all of this coming from? So, you know, I was in this consulting job that people thought was rather prestigious at the time and just felt like, wow, it'd be really hard to leave this and kind of jump out on my own and do something a little more unknown. So it took a while for me to break that and feel comfortable even going out and making my own moves just from a societal standpoint. Right. And where do you think that thought process came from? Did it come from the consulting world being surrounded around those people? Do you feel like that influenced you or where did it come from? You know, I'm still working on it in therapy. We're figuring it out. (laughs) (laughs) I think it is, you know, it's, it's competitive, it's capitalism. It's the speed of America, you know, abroad is just a very different place to be regardless of where you are. So the hustle mentality was really strong at that time. And I think financially, there's a lot of push to be successful financially here. So that was a big driver of it was, was probably rooted in financial success and just again, wanting freedom, which also comes along with that. So yeah, I don't know, but it's certainly rooted in capitalism. (laughs) So you were thinking of, or you were training to be a yoga teacher, but you had all this kind of hesitation around what it would look like to other people. If you were just, let's say a, a yoga teacher, right? So what did you end up doing? So I came back, kept working at that job that I didn't love, started to interview yoga teachers, other people in the health field to see how they liked their jobs, how that was working for them. And then uh, about a year later, I wound up negotiating a second sabbatical. And this was the time that I was really able to break free. So I went for a couple months, went back to India, did the same thing, but wound up going down to Bali, Indonesia on the back end of that trip, which is when I experienced some really profound healing by changing my diet. And that was enough for me to come back and say, okay, no more. I'm really going to change what I'm doing for my career. And what, what made you think that or want to do that? What was kind of the pivotal moment, I guess, for you? When I was in Bali, I stayed, I booked a little two week stay on a health resort. And this was about 10 years ago. So it was quite rustic, but it was kind of like a juice fast for a week and a half. And what I noticed was within those two weeks, my body completely uh, healed itself of asthma and allergies that I had had since a child. Uh, And it was very noticeable, really, the way I was breathing was completely different after a week and a half of just solely changing my diet. And so what I felt in the moment was, this is very profound because every doctor had told me this is how I was born. I would need medicine for the rest of my life. It was very expensive. It affected all realms of my life, playing sports, playing instruments, all of that. So did you like, can you walk us through what do you mean by like, what were you allergic to? And what were some of these, were you using an inhaler for your asthma like every day? Like what was it before? Yeah. So before I was using an inhaler almost every day, I was, it was allergy and exercise induced asthma. I was allergic to everything and I can explain more about this, but it was everything from grass to dust, trees, animals, pollen, hay. You know, if I walked into a barn, forget it. I would have hives everywhere, swollen. So really intense. And so to change my diet and instantly feel like without an inhaler, I'm breathing different. I mean, fundamentally breathing differently. And I could tell that my eczema was clear. My my skin was clearing. My digestion was way better. I always had digestive issues. 
So I think, you know, the biggest things was really removing dairy and just processed foods in general, but it did, it allowed my body to heal. And I was supplementing with probiotics. So, you know, taking the cleanse rather seriously, but at the same time, it was just two weeks. So you felt this huge difference after doing a juice cleanse in Bali and you feel more clarity. You're not having asthma. You're not using your inhaler. You're not feeling allergies, which is kind of crazy, right? Because when my husband has a lot of allergies and it's always about like, oh, it's in the air. And, and it just feels like that's what you should try to control is the air, which like good yeah, luck. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> you know? Exactly. Right. So this is so interesting that you're, you saw a relationship between food and allergies and um, asthma. Yeah. And ultimately I think it comes down to just the microbiome in the gut. And I had damaged my gut for so long eating dairy and all these foods that were just creating inflammation in my body that when I was able to remove those and start bringing in more healing ingredients and the supplements and probiotics on top of just those clean you know, fresh juices, it really supported my body to then be able to deal with external allergens as opposed to just constantly fighting internally and using all of its energy in that way. Yeah. I'm just thinking for all the people out there, they're like, I can't make it to Bali to do this. (laughs) You know, they're like, what do I do? Do I have to just order a bunch of juices and just like stay in my house and not see anyone? Because I'll be so hangry. No one will (laughs) want to be my friend. So what do they do? Right. Yeah. You know, it's a good question. And I think juice, juice cleanses these days get a lot of flack because it can be a lot of sugar for people. And I think what's important to know is that there's a time and a place for a juice fast. I'm not a doctor. I do find a juice fast, a five day juice fast, even tremendously beneficial, both for the body. It just, you're not digesting. There's no fiber. So during that time, your body's not working to do all of this digesting, which again, allows its energy to go elsewhere, heal other things also has provided me a lot of mental clarity. One of my favorite stories is I was living in New York before I had traveled to Bali, very stressed out, very anxious, had never been this stressed out in my life at this job. And I did a five-day juice fast and three days in, I'll never forget sitting down at my desk with absolutely no stress, a hundred percent calm, and just had the mentality of, you know what? It's a lot of work, but I can be here for 12 hours. I will get it done. It's not the end of the world. I got this. And the only thing I had changed was was that juice fast. So you weren't meditating. You weren't doing anything else. No workouts. No. Just cleansing. Only thing I changed was what I was putting in my body. And again, I just, there is something to say, whether I was eating sugar or processed crap before, I don't really remember, but that break, that juice fast break just mentally and physically was such a recharge. Mm -hmm. No caffeine, unfortunately, sounds like no caffeine. (laughs) (laughs) That's the tough one for me is the the no coffee in the morning. (laughs) So you come back and you realize, wow, I need to really change my diet. Did you go vegan or or something after this? Or what kind of changes did you make to sustain and keep the clarity? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when I was living in Bali, I adopted what's called a raw vegan diet, which is vegan, but on top of that, it's raw food. So all fresh, nothing cooked. And that really served my body for the time that I was there because I was in this really tropical, warm environment where fresh fruits and vegetables are everywhere. Coming home to Chicago, I tried to adopt that, keep that going because I was feeling so great. But once I got back to the cold weather and noticed that that really was not making my body feel good. So 
quickly adjusted. I kept vegan, but I started having cooked foods. And I think today, now I will incorporate really high quality meat. So I'm no longer vegan. But for me, it was really the dairy and processed foods that I no longer incorporate in my diet. That's made the biggest difference. I always find it fascinating when people are vegan for a little bit and then they're like, I mean, I eat meat again. You're like, well, what? Yeah. <laughs> what made you go yeah. to be vegan in the first place and then come back? Yeah. And be that. I think it's really interesting. You know, we're, we're running a very sustainable sustainability driven brand, but for me, the impetus for being vegan has always been health focused. And so there's obviously a lot of environmental benefits to veganism, but also looking at the regenerative landscape and finding, you know, grass fed organic meats. I do think that there is a place in the market. And I think I'm always just the most interested in how we feel as humans, how our food is making us feel and really listening and tuning into our bodies to understand. Cause I've seen a lot of people adopt veganism and really identify with that label and become quite sick, start losing their hair or various things because it's very difficult to do a vegan diet. Well, to get all the right nutrients, you have to eat a very varied diet, which is just difficult to do yourself. Mm, interesting. And so after you came back and you kind of implemented this raw food diet um, or, you know, and it was Chicago winter. So you started eating not so much raw, but some more cooked warm, probably soups. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, you know, how did the idea for sacred serve come about? Yeah. So while I was in Bali, I had met a couple women who shared this knowledge and passion for nutrition. And they had mentioned that they went to this nutrition school where you can become a health coach and teach people how to adopt healthier diets. So I thought that that was really synchronistic that I had met various people along my travels that had all gone through that school. So that was the first thing I did when I got home was I went back to school. It was all online part-time and started to build up what I wanted to do, which was a health coaching practice with the goal of moving back to Bali and coaching and doing all of that there. So that was really kind of the first step. And I did, I wound up moving back to Bali, lived there for about a year, did health coaching remotely. And it was when I was living there where I felt, I think I need to create a product because coaching people one-on-one -on -one is having such tremendous impacts. They are also weaning off medications and feeling so much better. But the issue is that it's the food at the grocery store that's catching people. You know, I can teach people all day how to read labels, but it's not going to help if all the labels are always garbage. So I thought, can we target this sugar dairy laden category and do it in a functional way to hopefully create just a bigger change across, you know, the retailer landscape. So it was a combination of being in Bali, discovering this young coconut meat, which is our hero ingredient, and simultaneously feeling really called to build a product-based business. And how did you discover this uh, young coconut meat? Because I have seen that kind of all over on the label on these yeah. packages, but I don't really, I mean, I know what that is, but how mm -hmm. did you discover that? Yeah, exactly. Most people really don't know what it is. And so it comes from the green coconuts that give you coconut water. So people will know if they've ever been to like Thailand or something, you can see that they'll crack them open and stick a straw in and you just drink the water right out of the coconut. But the byproduct of that is the coconut shells. And if you take a little spoon and kind of scrape the inside, there's this coconut pulp that's really soft. Um, it's got a ton of fiber, all electrolytes in there. 
potassium, lots of good minerals. And so that is what we're using as the base. And I saw this being used in Bali. So because Bali has such a big wellness scene, it's one of like the biggest yoga capitals in the world. Now, a lot of chefs from all over the world are going there and opening up these like raw vegan restaurants. And so because coconuts are everywhere, they got super creative with that coconut meat. So I saw them doing everything from spiralizing it into noodles to putting it in curries, sauces, fruit salads, you name it. So it's really kind of this dairy pasta meat alternative And what's so great about it is it has a much more subtle coconut taste. So it's not that really strong heat treated coconut milk that we're used to. It's a very subtle taste. So it it picks up flavors of anything that you're adding to it really well. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. With the rising costs of acquiring new customers, retention is a key focus for DTC brands. And creating outstanding customer experiences shouldn't be costly or a burden for your customer support team. This is exactly why Gorgeous is so great. They centralize all of your customer communications into one beautiful dashboard, personalizing each experience along the way, which not only helps you retain your customers, but also saves you time and increases revenue. Gorgeous works with over 9,000 brands, including Princess Polly, Olipop, and Boxu. So if you'd like to be one of them, head on over to Gorgeous.com and mention the Stairway to CEO podcast to get two months free. That's two months free of Gorgeous when you head over to Gorgeous.com. That's G-O-R-G-I-A-S.com and mention the Stairway to CEO podcast. Okendo is the new standard in customer reviews, and they want to make it simple and easy for you to collect user-generated content to use for your Shopify site. Retailers that use Okendo have seen an 81% increase in conversion rate when customers interact with reviews and UGC on their site. With Okendo, you can showcase UGC and reviews on your e-commerce site to build trust with your customer base and compel buying action. Okendo works with some of Shopify's fastest growing brands like Skims, Carbon38, Byte, Magic Spoon, so many more. So if you'd like to join these high growth brands, head on over to go.okendo.io slash stairway to CEO to book a demo and take advantage of getting 30 days free on Okendo. Thank you so much to our amazing sponsors. I hope you're able to take advantage of these exclusive deals designed just for you. Now let's get back to the show. So you kind of have this idea for this business. What were some of the first things that you did to kind of get it off the ground? Yeah. First thing was recipe iteration. So a lot of R&D just at home, I was working with one of my partners to get this off the ground. He's a raw food chef. And so we were doing recipes back and forth, back and forth. And the first real step, very naive, I said, I'm going to invest $5,000 in this business and and we're going to see how far that takes me. So I bought a soft serve machine from China, imported it and um, was working out of a little commissary kitchen and thought I was going to do soft serve at first. But of course that machine didn't work. So I had to pivot. (laughs) Oh no, you got it. And it didn't work. I got it. It didn't work. That was my $5,000 down the drain. And at that time I thought, shoot, you know, I really like this idea. Maybe we need to go the hard packed ice cream route. And with that, maybe we need to get an American made machine and start there. Right. So is that what you did? 
that's what we did. Um, I think that was my next biggest investment, somewhere around $12,000 for this other machine and started really making ice cream and putting it into more standard pint containers to start selling at the farmer's market and different events around the city. And what I find interesting, you know, the, the pints or the little the ice cream cartons that you use are like kind of paper, right? They're like 100% recyclable. That's not something I've seen before. And they actually come in these little cute little sizes, you know? I mean, how much is this actually? So what made you want to do the recycled um, route? What made you want to go that route, not just put it in a typical pint like everyone else? Yeah, you know, coming out of the gate, I knew that our product was so different than anything on the market. This was also six, seven years ago where there was really little innovation happening in the ice cream set as a whole. So wanting to introduce these functional ingredients, I knew our price point was going to be quite high, especially at the scale that we were doing everything and felt like from a branding perspective, with this high price point, we needed to make sure that every touch point was elevated. And so I began researching and looking into solving this problem of no pints being recyclable, which took me three years. So I launched with this shape because one, it's a smaller size. So our price on shelf would be lower. I wanted to stay under $10. And secondly, it used less paperboard with the reduction of that lid. So it was using less material for less waste. Right. There's no lid for people who are listening and haven't seen this. It looks like the Chinese takeout containers where you little, you fold them on the top, except it doesn't have the little, the wire handle. Right. Right. Exactly. So we launched those. It was on post-consumer recycled paperboard and it was the closest we could get to a sustainable solution. But then just this past year, it's always been top of mind. We've been working, working, finally found a partner out in the UK who came up with this moisture barrier alternative. So what makes all the pints non-recyclable is that they have this thin layer of plastic on the inside that acts as a moisture barrier. And so plastic and paperboard together cannot be peeled apart and recycled. So it is just renders it trash. So this supplier out in the UK has made a water-based moisture barrier that is proprietary that when applied to the paperboard is 100% plastic free, but also acts as a proper moisture barrier. So we were thrilled, thrilled to be able to move on that and launch it. And we're working on launching it in some new sizes as well. And it took you three years. Is that what I heard you say to, to kind of come up with the packaging? It was really kind of a function of our size and the accessibility of the innovation in general. So early on, I found not an entirely plastic-free solution, but a better lower waste solution on the paperboard side and spoke with our cup supplier and said, I want to import this paperboard. I want to run our cups on this. And they said, absolutely not. We would need a minimum order of $300,000 to do anything like this. So good luck. And at that time, I'm sure I was running $10,000 worth of cups, if that. So it took a while to get scale. It took a while for people to listen to us. And it took a while for the innovation itself to come to market. Interesting. And so what do you, so when did you go to market and what was your strategy to kind of get this off the ground? Yeah. So we um, had product in market late 2017 and throughout 2018, what I really started doing was selling the product into a lot of local co-ops and just smaller stores that I could service and monitor myself and just see how sales were going and all of that. And then in May of 2019, so we essentially pulled out of all those stores, did a big rebranding, raised a friends and family round, and then launched into Whole Foods, which was really kind of our true launch in the market. 
Well, that's a really great beginning <laughs> into retail with Whole Foods. <laughs> yes. um, what were some of the challenges that you faced in um, getting into Whole Foods? Mm-hmm. Yeah, very difficult process. The first challenge is getting an email, understanding who it is you need to email. So for people that don't know, accounts like Whole Foods, because they're so large, they have what's called category buying calendars. And so they'll only review our frozen you know, ice cream category once or twice a year. So you only have these small windows for them to even look at your product. So you have to figure out when those are. You have to figure out who the buyer is, what their email is. Then you have to start emailing them hundreds of times, truly. They're never going to respond. Always coming up with something creative or newsworthy thing to ping them with. I was fortunate because I had joined an accelerator here in Chicago and we had the local foragers, they were called at the time, local buyers from Whole Foods come in and speak to our class. And I had been hammering them with emails, so they probably knew who I was. But when they came into class, then we were each able to get our meetings. So that's how we made that happen. What was the accelerator that you were part of in Chicago? Uh, It was called the Good Food Accelerator. It was a short program, I think less than a year, but it was great. We touched on you know everything from sales, marketing, pitching, and fundraising. And probably one of the biggest benefits was just the network of entrepreneur peers out of that, as well as uh, advisors. They set us up with an advisor, which was really instrumental in our growth. That's awesome. Yeah. Accelerators can be enormously helpful and valuable, especially as a solo female first time founder, which I have been myself as well. What were some of the challenges that you faced in fundraising? I know you mentioned that you raised like over a million bucks already for your, your business. What has it been like to fundraise and what were some of the challenges that you've had to overcome? Yeah, I think the biggest challenges were mental confidence, really going out there in the way that I speak about the company and myself and my belief in the mission. You know, you get a lot of no's. I'm an introvert, so I'm not used to going out there and speaking in front of a lot of people. So it was uncomfortable for me in the beginning to really go and promote myself. That's just not uh, something that is very comfortable, I think, for a lot of women in general overall. So that was a big learning lesson. Well, so how did you overcome that? What did you do? We were just like, I just got to start going out there. But then what were some of the, were there things that you began to see were working when you were promoting yourself? Like, how did you switch it up? How did you go from, I really feel uncomfortable promoting myself to, I know I have to do this, so I'm going to do it and then keep on doing it. (laughs) Yeah. I would say it was repetition to exhaustion. I did a lot of pitch competitions. I got involved in anything I could in terms of who I pitching in front of people. The beginning of my fundraising was in person, but then COVID hit. So a lot of what I was doing was on zoom, which I think also was really helpful. I could kind of see myself, hear myself, be sitting at home um, and really refining that pitch. So I just became extremely comfortable with the story. Storytelling is the biggest thing. And talking about the traction of the brand. So yeah, just consistently running through that pitch over and over again. Did you record yourself at all so you could look back and see how you did on your pitch? I did. And I even had um, a session with a consultant to kind of run through just every ounce of that, how I'm coming across little different things, you know, even setting the way that your face fits in the screen is important and what's in the background and everything like that. So yeah, I did a couple sessions like that to refine it as well. 
It's so important to get that outside perspective. <laughs> it really does. It's funny. I was um, advising a startup the other day and she was walking through her deck and there was like a slide and I'm like, this makes no sense. And it has nothing really to do with what you're, I know what you're trying to say, but what you're saying is actually not even relevant. Like it's not even positioning it in like the best light possible. It's a kind of a fact you don't need to even talk about, right? And so anyways, I find it really fascinating. And because as a founder myself, I know that you're, you're in your head, you're in a bubble, you're kind of, you, you have only one perspective on how to present the business. And um, sometimes that can get in the way, or at least you just have too many things that aren't needed and you spend your time <laughs> on the wrong things. And you only have like 20 minutes to pitch before exactly. they lose interest. <laughs> yep. So yeah, it's got to be very concise. Yep. Yep. So you used a consultant. Have you ever worked with um, coaches? Like, how do you feel about coaching? Yeah, I feel great about coaches. I have not worked with coaches specifically from the business perspective, but I do work very closely with an advisor. So you could maybe call them a coach, but we do have weekly calls to discuss, you know, every area of the business. So yeah, that's been tremendously helpful in my growth as well. Yeah. If you can have an advisor that you're that close with, that you can confide in and talk to on a weekly basis, especially again, as a solo founder, that that's, can be a really huge thing. It'll feel like a little co-founder there. (laughs) Exactly. I think that was one of the things that I would definitely do differently the next time around is pick up a co-founder or get a team a lot earlier, because like you're saying, a lot of time was spent in my head with no outside opinions. So even just getting a check on things, is really helpful from, from a mental perspective too, and just believing in what you're doing. Right, right. Someone to bounce some ideas off of. And so what's some of that early traction that you got in the beginning where you realized, I think we have something here. I should keep running with this. Or did you ever think maybe I shouldn't be doing this? <laughs> yeah, I have both of those thoughts pretty frequently. Um, I think, you know, one of the early things that was really exciting is I believe this was before we were even selling in Whole Foods when we were just at some of these local co-ops. We had one very tiny store start ordering a ton of product, just cases and cases. And we thought, huh, are we just really taking off in the market or is something happening? And one of the store owners ended up telling us, look, some some professional athlete is coming in and buying all of your products. And we couldn't figure out who it was. So we, we waited weeks and weeks. And then finally, we saw a post on Instagram from an NBA player who just said, I found this ice cream. I love it. Thank you guys so much. And so fast forward, he ended up becoming an investor in our company, but that was just, yeah. That is so cool. Did you like (laughs) DM this guy and be like, Hey, I'm the founder. Exactly. You should invest. (laughs) Yeah. I DM'd him and just said, you know, thanks so much. It's funny too. Cause he, he has whatever hundreds and hundreds of thousands of Instagram followers. So you'd feel like it's such good exposure for us, but then everyone who follows him is interested in basketball, not ice cream. Right. So it's hard to say really if that translated, but we did, you know, say thank so much for posting it. We really appreciate it. And he was super excited and said, you know, I was really glad I found you. We were online looking for a healthy, clean treat. And we found your product and realized we could get it at our local market. And he was like, I'd love to come in and make ice cream with you guys and see how you do it and just be such a champion for you. So yeah, it was, it was fun. And it was just kind of one of those moments where you think, wow, okay, we've really done something that has attracted this attention from a professional athlete, which of course, who's better to know about nutrition and the body than someone like that. 
It's so interesting. This is kind of why I like the consumer space because I feel like these funny little lucky moments can happen out of nowhere. And you have, and like that is such a cool little surprise, right? But in the B2B world, like I've never really heard <laughs> right. of stuff like this happen. No big customer just all of a sudden says, hey, I want to use your software. Like it's, <laughs> it's just such a different right. thing. Right. Um, but the consumer space, things like this happen all the time. A big mm-hmm. retailer can approach you. You get some random press that you didn't know you would get. You get a NBA player that's talking about you on Instagram or a Kardashian, you know, mentioning you. It's really crazy. It's really cool to hear these fun stories. So beyond that, what are some other things that have really helped move the needle in terms of growth for the business? Mm-hmm. You know, I think hiring a effective sales team, that was something that was tough early on. I had done sales for a CPG company in the past, and I was used to calling buyers and selling the product in. But when you get to this level where you're really dealing with, again, these category buyers, it's important to get someone on your team that has those relationships. That's a big piece of it is the relationship building side. So that was really helpful for us to start growing our distribution and just have the product be available for more people to find. And so how do you go about hiring an effective sales team? I know before we kind of hopped on here, we talked a little bit about outsourcing versus versus like having in-house tons of employees to manage. What does your team dynamic kind of look like with outsource versus in-house employees? Yeah, we were chatting about this earlier. I think it's been so helpful for us. One, because we bootstrapped the company early on. And again, being a solo founder, my time was so, so limited that it was very difficult to manage a big team. So I found a lot of success, both from a time management perspective, as well as financially, to hire what's called fractional teams. So like our sales, for example, we have kind of our chief sales officer, but she's a separate organization. And so she has a team of six. So three of those people are dedicated to us full time, but she also manages a couple other companies sales. So for me, it's great because I can really just delegate only to her. This is what we need to have happen. And then she can manage her team of six. Yeah. Which definitely takes a lot of weight off of your shoulders (laughs) and lessens the need for a massive leadership team to be managing a bunch of people. Yeah. I find it very fascinating with outsourcing. There's a lot of opportunities to outsource now. I feel like there, there was not nearly as much opportunity to have like a fractional CMO or fractional COO or all these things. I think you're right. Yeah, it's been super helpful. And I think it spreads the risk out as well. You know, we're getting a handful of people instead of just hiring one VP of sales. And and it's easy to switch agencies, you know, if something's not going right. And like you said, the dynamic is flipped. They're impressing me. I'm not trying to take care of them. them. Yeah, Yeah. you know. (laughs) Totally. Not thinking about like benefits and how to like, you know, incentivize the team. They're trying to keep you incentivized to stay as a customer to them. So it switches it, which is, can be nice sometimes to have that. Definitely. So what's next for the brand? You have some incredible flavors, the chocolate, was it? Chaga chocolate and the matcha mint are my two favorite. Those are gone. I've got the, the coconut salted caramel now, which is delicious. Yeah. What's next? Do you guys have some amazing flavors and do you, are you working on new flavors or new products or what are you thinking? 
Yeah, we are working on a new product right now, also a new flavor. So we do hope to launch those later this year. And so the biggest thing we're working on right now is we've got a big packaging change coming up. Really excited to be launching something new, still sustainable, but hopefully proving out that more and more people can adopt this like we have. And then we have a really big launch coming up in the next couple of months. We're going to be launching nationwide with one of our favorite retailers. So we are just building inventory and gearing up for the summer. That's amazing. That sounds really exciting. So what's something that you've learned about building a business or what's something that you think most people don't know about building a business? That it is incredibly challenging um, that the early days take all of you. I think all of your brain, all of your time, um, a lot of emotion. I think it was a very emotional journey for me being a mission-based company. So I went into it with kind of the sacrificial idea that, look, I'll, I'll sacrifice. I'll give a lot into this for the couple early years and we'll maybe be sell and have more freedom. But now that I'm in it, I think for one, that's an potentially damaging narrative to have for entrepreneurs to go in and think that they're going to hustle, hustle, hustle for a couple of years and then sell their company off. Very rarely works like that. And uh, it's just really not good for mental health. So that is the biggest thing I've learned through this journey is that if you're not careful, uh, you can really, really get lost in working a ton and giving up a ton. And so just making sure that you're very clear around both boundaries and what you're looking to get out of the company and your life before going into it, because it's easy to just get so excited and devote everything to this, but I've, you know, gotten burnt out for sure here and there. And so it's just important to have those guardrails up. What are your guardrails? Like what, how do you know when you're starting to feel burnt and what do you do to prevent it? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, being a health coach and having this nutrition background, a lot of my early work was learning how to tune in with myself and just constantly check in. So that's something that I still do all day long. It's just constantly checking in. And when I went through that burnout phase where I was not listening to myself, checking in and pushing forward, I think it's really easy for me to notice now what that feeling is. It's kind of like brain fog and it's just no motivation and not inspired. So if I'm sitting in front of my computer and it's late in the afternoon and I'm noticing I'm just hitting this roadblock where it's difficult for me to send an email, it's taking too long. I used to push through that and just think, okay, it's fine. Like get another cup of coffee, whatever. But now I have found it is tremendously effective to just completely step away for maybe even an hour, go watch a movie and come back. Um, but your body needs that rest. Your brain needs a chance to kind of recover. So I have just stopped pushing it and just kind of let go a lot more. Are there any books that you've read that have been really helpful during your journey? Funny enough, I always say the alchemist, which is not a business book. It was important from just the mission and life purpose side of what it is to build a business. And like I'm saying, when you're dedicating a lot to this, it can't just be for money. It can't just be for clout. You really have to be dedicated and want something big to happen and make a difference from this. So I think The Alchemist was really helpful for me to tap into my dreams and what I think I'm here to do and my gifts and how I can use those in a positive way. So I think, yeah, it was helpful to kind of really come into my purpose and feel like I can live, live that out through this business. You mentioned something earlier about kind of like your idea maybe of entrepreneurship being flexibility, some freedom, 
work when you want type of thing. And I think that a lot of people view entrepreneurship as just that. Like, I won't have to work for anybody else. I can work for myself. And there's freedom in that. And I think if you're doing what you love, there is a lot of freedom in a way because you are waking up every day to do what you love. And there's a lot of benefits that come with that. The other flip side is that maybe it gets kind of old. Maybe you get kind of run down and you actually feel like you have a ball and chain on your ankle every day. Mm-hmm, <laughs> <Right>? mm-hmm. <laughs> and like, and actually you can't just quit. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like, I mean, unless you want to close down the company, it's like a whole thing, you know, it's not just let me quit and find a new job. That's interesting. You actually just started a whole thing that you can't just back out of. Like it's a huge commitment. And I think the commitment piece is probably underestimated, I think. Yes, I think you're right. The commitment element and the omnipresent pressure was something that I think I really underestimated. What do you mean by that? What, what's omnipresent pressure? For me, starting the company, I always liken it literally to childbirth. <laughs> like the first year was literally giving birth. You're con- you're, this idea is coming to conception. You're working everything out then you give birth to this thing. It it doesn't walk. And I felt like I had to touch, if I didn't touch this business every single day, it would, it would and could die. And that's very real. No one knows about you. No one cares about you. If you're not on the phone pushing every day, it will go nowhere and your retailers will get rid of you and no one will think twice. So there was that pressure early on before we really had much traction that I have to touch this every day and I'm the only one doing so. And if not, I'm going to lose it. So that was stressful to just feel constantly like I had to be doing these things. And I was working weekends. So there was a lot of that. But as the business evolves, there's, you know, now it's a toddler. It can walk on its own. I don't have to feed it and nurture it every single day. It can do some things on its own. We have a team, but there's still that pressure that I have to raise it, you know? So I have to be there and we have investors that we're answering to now. So it becomes like we were saying, we don't have a boss, but you are now kind of answering to people and responsible and responsible to employees. So, you know, the pressure doesn't go away on the weekends, doesn't go away at night. You do have the flexibility, but it does kind of feel like you're working 24 seven because I don't know when the business is ever not on my mind. You know, just a random thing will just make you think about it. So, right. It's like, the people who have a nine to five job right now working for someone else, they think that they don't have the freedom, but actually maybe you do if you're clocking out at five, because <laughs> you get to not think about it anymore. Clear mind. That's exactly right. And, you know, I think I was really interested in being a digital nomad. I read the four hour work week and that's really just freedom and location mostly, which I had when I was health coaching. But I was sad that I wasn't getting that with this company, you know, I ended up building a big physical location and got quite bogged down. But I do see that four years in the freedom is coming. Um, I have noticed over the last year, as we get more traction, raise more money, build a bigger team, that certainly my time has opened up a lot more. I'm able to focus on the things that are my strengths, the things that I really care about as opposed to having to do, you know, every ounce of the business that that's a huge takeaway is starting a company. It's going to take three to four years before you're going to actually be doing the things you want to be doing. (laughs) Right. And that's like after launch. Yeah. (laughs) Not not to mention the two years or three of product development. So, (laughs) yep. 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 I mean, right. I was a janitor washing dishes, just doing all of the things that you never think when you think of starting a company. 
What do you mean? You were, uh, you were washing your own dishes or you were working yeah. overtime elsewhere. Okay. Washing my own dishes, washing our own floors, you know, all of that crazy back end stuff that, um, you grind out early on and always. <laughs> yeah. Well, congrats on the grind. And I'm glad to see or hear that you are, um, seeing the light at the end of the tunnel here. Oh <laughs> yeah. A little, um, reward for all the hard yeah. work coming through. Congrats on your success and on a delicious product with recyclable packaging. Kudos to you for doing that. Best of luck with everything moving forward. Excited to see what national retailer you're launching with and what kind of packaging you've come up with and some new flavors. Wonderful. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing.